Ahoy, ahoy. Ahoy, ahoy. All right. I am uh, joined from Ann Arbor, Michigan, by uh, Professor Matthew McManus. How are you doing? I am doing well. Uh, it's the end of the fucking semester, so there's always like a, a deep breath after the plunge uh, that takes place, what I'm in the middle of right now. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, well, uh, you know, I thought it might be interesting to talk to you about this. Um, our uh, mutual friend, uh, Curtis Yarvin, uh, is somebody who came up again the other day on social media. Haven't thought about him in a minute. Um, Joe's kind of happy about, but anyway, whatever it's done, he's done. Uh, and he, um, he wrote something about you on his Substack a little while back. And I think you, you know, kind of made the reasonable calculation that it wasn't quite, you know, it was a response to, your article about him in Commonweal, and you know, you made the not unreasonable calculation that you know probably wasn't enough there to be quite worth um, writing a whole article about. But uh, you know, I always thought it'd be interesting to have you on to uh, to talk about it at least a little bit, because um, you know, if, if nothing else, I think it's like I don't know, psychoanalytically interested. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I have to say. Um... This winter, I read through three of Yarvin's books, as he calls them, from when he was still Mitch's mold bug, uh, and then a couple of the articles he's published on Substack since then, Grey Mirror. Uh, so I definitely inflicted my, a fair bit of uh, self-punishment uh, on myself, but it was worth it. People seemed to like the article, and it definitely pissed a lot of the reactionaries off. So that's always endearing. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> what he says at the beginning of the article might be, um, uh, you know, might be kind of revealing um, about uh, about one of the reasons maybe it pissed uh, pissed people off. Um, it, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, on, on Substack, you know, they'll let you, of course, one of the big differences between publishing on Substack and publishing in a magazine is that the magazine, you know, there's generally an editor who picks the, uh, the title and, you know, the head of the deck, right, the title, the subtitle. And, you know, maybe you could make a suggestion or whatever that, but that's usually out of the writer's hand. Uh, in this case, uh, of course, because it's Substack, <laughs> you can put whatever you want up there. And um, the title is The Historical Guilt of the Old Regime. Okay, that sounds like something he might use as a title. Subtitle is a quote from himself uh, from the article, has quotation marks around it, says, Presidente Zod, it turned out, knows that freedom follows order, unquote. And the fact that that's the line from his own article that he chose to to highlight, that's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, and what's intriguing about this is it begins with a couple of like quasi-personal jabs, uh, along with some slightly backhanded compliments. And then it goes on this very, very, very long digression, talking about all the different crimes that have been committed by a variety of quote-unquote progressive regimes, which includes uh, the United States and its more reactionary movements. Uh, and then it just progresses to talking about my article about a third, maybe two-fifths of the way down. Uh, but boy, oh boy, do you have to slog through a lot to get to the fucking point. Uh, and I was actually a little bit 
triggered by the, <laughs> my PTSD was triggered by reading this because I was like, oh God, it's just like reading his books again, where I spend an awful lot of time just being like, can you just stop repeating yourself? Stop saying the same things over and over again and get to the fucking point. I just want to know what your arguments for this are. That's all I want to know. I don't need all these weird circumlocutions. I don't need all this bad historicizing. I don't need all this guilt by association. Just get to the fucking point. Yeah. I mean, well, this is kind of what it does. Um, I mean, as you know, I uh, did a in-person debate with him and uh, also that means that I, um, you know, not a ton of time, but a bit of time over the course of the, the night and morning before uh, spent some, some time in the, the man's presence. Uh, I, you know, I found him deeply unpleasant, but one thing that is uh, a constant in uh, both the off-air interactions I had with him um, and the, uh, the debate itself and then stuff like this that, you know, that I read by him is that he, um, you know, he does a lot of like, well, uh, here's the stuff that I read that led me to think this. And, you know, I've read it and, you know, maybe you haven't read this particular book or whatever. So like that, that sort of settles something in itself, right? Like he doesn't, he does very little of the sort of argumentative connective tissue of, okay, here's what I got out of it. Here's a specific piece of information that was contained in it. And here's how this actually supports my conclusion. Oh, absolutely. And even if you read this article, there are, there's at least one very blatant occasion where I'll say something like, of course, no mainstream a academic or historian would actually agree with this take that I'm giving. Uh, but here are a couple of reactionary sources that don't exactly say what I'm saying, but if you read them hard enough, you'll realize that they say what I'm saying. Uh, and as far as argumentation goes, I suppose that's an approach. Uh, it's not one that I think that I have very much patience with, but there you yeah. go. Maybe I'm just too enamored with the mode of thought that's you know tolerated by the cathedral or something. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, actually, the fact that most subject matter experts would say something is evidence that this is the this is the deep truth the cathedral doesn't want you to know, um, which is convenient. But he starts out uh, saying um, that. Uh, I, I don't usually respond to attacks from the mainstream or as I prefer, this is italicized legitimate press. Usually these arguments are of the craven italicized drive-by type that Stephen Saylor, America's best italicized illegitimate journalist calls point and sputter. Now there is something interesting that's going on here, but I just want to pause that in the first two sentences, he's already displayed something he's going to do throughout the article which is that he's he's sort of getting affronted not by things that you actually said that he could quote, but just sort of by things that he could hypothetically imagine somebody who agrees with you said. Oh, absolutely. And if you notice, he's also going to vacillate between complimenting me and trying to suggest that I'm either an elite or soon going to be an elite. Uh, I mean, at one point he describes me as on my way to Harvard uh, and also – Guaranteed an invitation to all the best parties, which is quite nice. 
Uh, and then <laughs> other points, he puts mere lecturer uh, and stresses the fact that I only earn, he thinks, like $39,000, which is pretty close, actually, uh, a year uh, as, you know, reason probably not to take me seriously. And this is very common in a lot of forms of reactionary rhetoric, because since they're definitionally anti-egalitarian uh, and elitist, he has to kind of portray himself as above me in a certain kind of way, or at least suggest that I deserve not to have a certain amount of attention dedicated to me. On the other hand, since victimization is so absolutely central to the American right at this point, uh, it's also necessary to try to make me out to be this imposing, well-credentialed, well-heeled kind of figure, uh, whereas he and those who believe, as he does, are somehow the underdogs financed admittedly by, you know, a friendly billionaire who happens to be willing to pay for whatever it is that he wants, uh, but still the underdog. Uh, and I do have to admit, reading this again in preparation for this, revealed to me just how personally frustrated I am uh, with the vacillations between these two rhetorical modes of exposition. Because uh, I just sometimes want to scream at them, listen, either I'm a fucking elite or I'm just a absolute nobody, mere lecturer uh, at a nothing university. But it can't be fucking both. You have to fucking double, like, choose one and roll with that at a certain point. Yeah, well, I, I think that a lot of this makes sense if you see it through the lens of, you know, he's pushing back, you know, like, he's both rolling your his eyes at your academic elitism and... Um, and also say, oh, you know, he's not even really that much of an academic elite. But but neither half of that really makes sense when you remember that, like, there's no point anywhere in your article, I mean, not in the stuff he quotes, not in the stuff he doesn't quote, where you actually appeal to, like, elitism yeah. and academic credentials or anything like that. It's just, you know, I, I think the assumption is just, like, it, it, it literally is as lazy as, well, this guy's a college professor. We all know what they're like. Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting is I've encountered some of his followers uh, who talked about the kind of progressive uh, dimensions of academia as it stands right now. Uh, and what really was kind of insightful about this uh, was it revealed to me just how far on the right you have to be to actually buy into this narrative. Because uh, if you spend any time with people who are to the left of, let's say, Hillary Clinton or fucking Mitt Romney, uh, you'll know that most progressives don't, including myself, don't really have a lot of good things to say uh, about American universities in particular, but we could probably generalize and just say the world university system uh, in general, right? Uh, there's no doubt that academics uh, are as beholden to various kinds of neoliberal logics as anyone else. Uh, and you and I have both expressed our personal frustration with that. Uh, but the academy as a whole uh, is a very uh, elitist kind of institution. Uh, it tends to perpetuate systems of power uh, under the guise of opening the door to meritocratic status. And there are a lot of reasons to be critical of it from a progressive standpoint. Uh, and most of us are, from Bernie Sanders all the way even to Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, yes. I mean, there's a, like a very, very right-wing bubble that the Yarvin fans that you were interacting with on Twitter yesterday that made me think of all this. Uh, I think one of them said that you were even, you know, that uh, you were like James Lindsay, but even further left. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was fun, right? Yeah. Further to uh, the left of James Lindsay. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm like, how fucking right-wing do you have to be where James Lindsay is a left-winger? <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, so he's talking about points and spider journalism. And, you know, I do want to pause here to give him credit where credit's due, because I, I do know what he means here, right? When he says, oh, yeah. um, 
you know, uh, usually these articles, the Craven drive-by type, Stephen Saylor, blah, 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 calls points and sputter. Our Eek State hero comes smoking in, screeches to the intellectual California stop, sprays a few rounds and peels out. Uh, our hero is not here to engage and is certainly not expected any variety of return fire. Uh, and it's like, look, I think he is describing a real thing. I think that there there is oh, like a, a fair amount of writing about the right wing and especially writing about uh, sort of, you know, right wing edgelords like Yarvin uh, that, that does do exactly what he's describing. It's like, you know, it's like all you're really doing is you're just sort of saying you're just like holding up like some, you know, some particularly ridiculous thing that Yarvin or whoever says and that, or even just something that like deviates a lot from, opinions you're used to and being like, oh my God, look at this. Can you believe it? And, you know, driving off like that, that is a real kind of article. And, uh, and he is kind of acknowledging here. I mean, he sort of does it in the shittiest possible way, but he, he is acknowledging here that that's very much not what you're doing uh, in, uh, in your Commonweal essay. So uh, he says, whereas one, not McManus, no journalist, uh, but at least a professor, if a mere lecturer is so obsessed with this shit. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, writing in Commonweal, legitimate, yet still oddly Catholic. Uh, not sure what's going on there. Has bravely chose to dig in and do his homework, or what he thinks is his homework. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the... I'm going to skip right past. There's a long, long, long thing... I, I'm literally still scrolling as I'm talking right now. It, it goes on forever. Um, okay, yeah. I, I'm scrolling all the way to the next time he mentions you, uh, which is like, there's like a whole essay that I've essentially scrolled past within the essay. Um, but, uh, well, actually, let's start a, a paragraph before he mentions you again. Uh, it says, the Bolsheviks, too, joined the two comma club and mass murder and those who want to interpret 20th century communism as an unfortunate but somehow essential defensive response to 20th century fascism have a chronology problem to finesse. And the same is true. I, I don't know who he's talking about there, by the way, but whatever. Uh, you know, and hypothetically, that's a position someone somewhere might take, and it's bad. And the same is true of those who want to interpret the alliance between the U.S. and USSR as a defensive reaction to Hitler. More on this, Anon. Uh, so he's about to start talking about you yet, but I, again, but I, I did just want to pause on that for a second. Uh, the implication here, I guess, is, well, actually, I think there are two ways of reading that last part. And even though I did the debate with him, uh, you subjected yourself to a lot more of his written work than I have. So maybe you mm -hmm. can interpret this better than I can. Uh, it seems like the two possible ways to interpret that little jab at those who want to interpret the alliance between the U.S. and USSR as a defensive reaction to Hitler. And he might mean both, but or either that actually there was this deep ideological affinity between the U.S. and the USSR because uh, they're both, you know, progressive powers or whatever he likes to say, uh, or that it's not actually defensive, that, that actually, you know, um, that actually it was, uh, it was Hitler playing defense in World War II. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Yarvin has a critical uh, but also ambivalent response to fascism, right? Uh, I mean, at one point, he kind of half-jokingly, half-hysteriously half describes himself 
uh, as Hitler, uh, but with a higher IQ and less anti-Semitism. But he does have a pretty distinctive, let's call it that, history of the Second World War and the lead up to it. That helps explain this quotation, right? And this is what I was getting at when I was talking about his historical sloppiness, right? Uh, So he says that the proper way to frame the Second World War would not be uh, as a war between the Allies and the Axis, right? Uh, With the Axis being the kind of aggressive imperialist powers. Instead, it's better to understand the Axis as essentially being something akin to what he calls the Rebel Alliance, uh, fighting against the deepening hegemony of the progressive worldview in both its liberal and communist forms. And then he tries to water down Nazi and, for that matter, Japanese aggression by saying that really uh, they're engaged in local attempts at expansion. They had no aspiration for something like world domination, unlike uh, the allied powers in the Soviet Union. So we can kind of sort of suggest that this was a defensive war on the part of the Nazis. Uh, And he sometimes will walk that back and walk that forward, depending upon the particular writing in question or how it is that he's feeling. But that's the general sense that's meant to be conveyed by his analysis. Uh, And again, uh, speaking of chronology problems to finesse. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, And Again, uh, the kind of effect of this is to gesture towards a more alt-right position, uh, implying that maybe fascism wasn't as bad as it was just made out to be. It certainly wasn't imperialistic or didn't have world historical ambitions uh, and was at least partly the victim of allied aggression. But then he never will go that far because he's aware of the fact that that pushes him into some very sinister territory. Uh, let's put it that way, close to Holocaust revisionism, that kind of thing. So I'll walk back uh, that kind of claim and suggest like, well, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, we should endorse Nazism or whatever. Nazism is evil, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and this is what's really frustrating at points when it comes to arguing with his writing, uh, because this slipperiness uh, and this lack of integrity is the only way to describe it, uh, means that it's harder to pin something on him uh, than you might want it to be. And my sense is that that is a self-conscious strategy that he uses in order to try to send messages to some people uh, while avoiding responsibility for them towards others. Yeah. Um, I made a, a joke uh, that he not, he made in my presence and actually thought was funny enough that he, he said it twice while different people were in the room uh, is that People asked what the debate was going to be about. He said, was it really 6 million or is it more like 5.5? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And I mean, let's point out, just to try to respond to his actual concrete point, there is absolutely no doubt that the Nazis were the aggressive power in the Second World War, and for that matter, the Imperial Japanese, right? Yeah. Uh, just to use the Nazi example, so. every historian that you can talk to, including historical, oh, sorry, conservative historians like Stanley Payne, emphasize that the Nazis had, if not worldwide, at least Europe-wide ambitions they intended to essentially transform Eastern Europe into something akin to the British colonies, right, uh, which was going to involve mass genocide on their part. And there was a widespread acceptance that this would bring them into confrontation, at least with the two eternal German enemies of France and Russia. Uh, Hitler had more ambiguous feelings about Great Britain. He certainly didn't want to go to war with them, uh, but he wasn't opposed to doing so uh, when things kicked in. And even as late as 1942, when it looked like uh, the Nazis still might win the Second World War, what's really fascinating is in some true man in the high castle stuff, uh, Goebbels actually was having conversations with Hitler about what to do when America was inevitably defeated uh, and divided upwards, uh, showcasing just how far their ambitions had eventually stretched after the kind of early surge of victories against the Allied powers. Uh, Obviously, they take a very different tact after Stalingrad when it becomes obvious that things are going a lot more south. But in the moments of their heyday and in the moments of their victory, 
they really became global in their thinking about things. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, and found all kinds of ways to justify their aggression on that basis. And not only aggression, but I mean, like, to a fairly insane extent, like, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, uh, um, you know, there's the old, uh, I think there's, you know, there's an old joke about it's like Goebbels or Gorin or somebody is in bed with his mistress just before our Operation Barbarossa starts. And he says the Fuhrer is planning to invade the Soviet Union. And she says she's not sure what's in the Soviet Union. Is that just Russia? It's, no, no, no. It's all this other territory. And he shows her a map <laughs> and she's looking at the size of the Soviet Union on the map. Is says, darling, has the Fuhrer seen this map? Uh <laughs> Like, um, and, and even like after, after Pearl Harbor, I mean, the, uh, you know, Nazis declared war on the United States, uh, yeah. before vice versa, which, which they absolutely did not have to do. No, not at all. Right. Uh, and again, you know, the aspiration, uh, of Nazi Germany was essentially to supplant Great Britain, uh, as the ruling hegemonic power, certainly of Europe, um, and, ideally of the entire world, right? Uh, there's some interesting stuff that's written about the Nazi connection uh, to the United States. And some of the stuff that Yarvin doesn't point out is actually how deeply indebted uh, the Nazis were to America. Uh, part of the reason he doesn't like to mention that, of course, is because he sees America, at least in his formative years, as the most left-wing country in the world. Uh, but things like the Nazi uh, Nuremberg laws were modeled off of various kinds of segregationist policies in the American South. Uh, actually, in Mein Kampf, Hitler doesn't single out a lot of nations for praise, uh, but in a deeply disturbing moment, he actually singles out the United States for praise, uh, where he says they were the most, quote unquote, progressive nation uh, when it came to things like race policy. Because, of course, they were. Right. Um, so it's, it's certainly of, it's certainly talked extensively about the uh, the clearer to the frontier as like an analogy for you know the Eastern Front and all of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to suggest in any case, shape or form that the allies were the unambiguous good guys in the Second World War and that they didn't commit mass atrocities uh, sure. that were entirely unjustifiable on their own. Right. Um, I even ha I have a great deal of sympathy for people who point out that Dresden is a war crime. Certainly I have an enormous amount of sympathy for people who point out that the bombing of the Imperial Japanese islands, particularly these large civilian populations, was a war crime. If I had my way. Uh, Admiral Nimitz would have been in jail for yeah. the rest of his life because of the enormity of the suffering that he inflicted upon mostly children and women. Uh, but let's be clear, right? This was an aggressive war started by the revanchist powers who wanted to effectively refight the First World War in order to gain the results that they didn't actually get. Uh, sorry, that they didn't uh, get in the first one. Uh, and there was good reasons uh, to try to stop them from doing that. In fact, I would argue that if there is one example of a historical conflict that needed to be fought, it probably was the Second World War. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, they, uh, and again, like, they really weren't uh, very bashful about this at the time. I mean, I think that, like, Imperial Japanese propaganda at one point, uh, like, officially referred to documents to China as the Western Resource Zone, you know, so like I, I think that it's like there was there was very, um, you know, like I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think they would be surprised at Yarvin's defense of them. Let's put it that way. But um, absolutely. All right, returning, Yarvin says to Professor McManus, a self-described progressive and social democrat, when, uh and I think he has hyperlinks to to show. 
that you've you've used these labels. Um, when in the year 2023 you read the word fascism, a reference to a movement of your cultural enemies that was defeated 78 years ago, it's a good habit to control after the document for communism, a movement of our cultural allies. That is a really strange claim, but let's move on. If I, if I could actually just pause there, because this is something that really pissed me off also. I noticed that he did this, and a couple of his followers accused me of characterizing him as a fascist. Uh, and what this really indicated to me was just how lazy his approach to my article was. Because uh, if anybody read this carefully, and it's not long, it's only about a 3,000-word article compared to the hundreds of pages of slop that I had to go through, I very clearly say that he sometimes flirts with fascism and fascist rhetoric before very clearly walking this back and actually has a theory about why the political right at this point should reject fascism uh, because, A, uh, it's strategically unviable to go down that route. Uh, in one of his writings, he says it's like a gate that's guarded by bloodhounds, right? You can't be fascist in the 21st century without liberals, progressives, and everyone else reacting against you uh, and just drilling you into the ground. But the more important reason is that fascism, as he constantly stresses, has this kind of demotic quality to it. It has a populist dimension where it tries to appeal to the masses uh, and engage them in politics. And Yarvin thinks that fascism is too democratic for him. In this respect. <laughs> yeah, like he wants a good old Jacobite, uh, elite-run, aristocratic oh. political order uh, where the masses aren't involved in any meaningful way. And I state all this very explicitly in that article. Uh, so trying to suggest that I'm just applying the F word to him crudely uh, and simplistically really doesn't do credit to my 3,000 fucking word article, which anybody could have read carefully if they had the time and the willpower to do so. Yeah, well, I mean, it really shows that he... Uh that he can't go off script, that um, he knows how to respond to people jumping up and down and calling him the fascist. He knows how to respond uh, to uh, to people sort of making snide appeals to academic elitism. But when he's responding to somebody who's not doing either of those things, he's, he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he just pretends that they are because that's what he's used to. I mean, I actually really like the point about how you know, what are the reasons that whatever, you know, fascisty tendencies he might have and, you know, come on, he does, but like, um, oh, yeah. the, uh, like that, what are the reasons? I mean, you don't call yourself kind of like Hitler, uh, but with more IQ points without maybe not being a fascist, but at least being curious, right? You don't want to marry fascism or have a baby with it, but you're at least willing to go on a few dates and fool around for a few months with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, However, fascism curious he might be, he's. Uh, they, I really like the point that one of the reasons that he holds back is uh, that he distrusts mass politics in general. You know, because I think uh, not only because it's you know just kind of funny that you know he's uh, in a certain sense to the right of fascism. You know that uh, he he. I mean, he's, he's very open about that, right? He, he sort of prefers monarchies, but um, but also um, because I think it's something that a lot of people who like Yarvin really miss about him, that if they actually paid attention to the words he was saying, not just the vibe that's conveyed by those words, I think they would notice that a lot of the things they hate and resent most about liberals are also true of Yarvin's worldview. Uh, that uh, that he really, um, you know, that he really does want a, uh, you know, benevolent elite to rule over you and tell you what's true and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'd also like to point out, he tries to imply that it's ridiculous uh, to suggest that anyone is a fascist because they were, quote, defeated 78 years ago, uh, as though it's time to move on. Uh, and there's some kind of 
lack of intellectual contemporaneity, contemporaneity, uh, if you don't, uh, just move on from this. And this is a guy who's still fucking sore, not about the French Revolution, but about the fucking English Civil War. I kid you not, right? Uh, so my response is, Maybe it's time for him to fucking grow up a little bit and just get over it, right? I hate to break it to you. Charles's head was chopped from its shoulders. It's gone. It's not coming back. I understand it's been a few centuries and that maybe it takes a little time for you to get over things, but it's time. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So he says, uh, so it's good to have, it could happen to control F the document for communism, a movement of our cultural allies, whatever the fuck that means, that was victorious 78 years ago. And I uh, wonder why it's more important to be afraid of dead devils than living ones. Um, Side note on this, uh, I mean, okay, 78 years ago, the end of World War II, then, you know, capital C, communism, uh, the the communist bloc, right, you know, led by Stalin's Soviet Union, was victorious. That's true. Um, Has anything relevant happened since then? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's... A few little uh, breaches with our former cultural allies that took place. Not a big deal, uh, but yeah, I mean, there was some bad blood uh, that came to the fore between 1945 and 1989 between the Soviet Union and the United States. Just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one, uh, I mean, yes, I, I think there are uh, many millions of uh, surviving widows and orphans and uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos that uh, would like a word about uh, this, but also, too, um, the vast majority of those regimes are gone now and have been at this point for the vast majority of my life and the vast majority of Curtis Yarvin's life and uh, all of the life of many of the people who uh, who are reading Curtis Yarvin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and. Anybody who tries to convey this idea that the United States has been at the bastion of progressivism and hasn't had any kind of reactionary inclinations. And so really the Cold War is just a gigantic fight between two different prongs of the progressive movement is saying something that's ridiculous, right? Uh, I mean, go talk to the people of Chile or the people of Iran uh, and suggest uh, that the United States is deeply committed to equality, democracy, the participation of the masses in politics, uh, and fundamentally had no substantial disagreement with communists on these kinds of points. Uh, really, it was just technical disputes between them that were the only thing that was important. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the germ of truth, what he's saying, when he says stuff like this, um, you know, the little exchange we had in our debate about, um, you know, him calling the United States and the Soviet Union kindred progressive powers, uh, it, is that it is true that, American capitalism and Soviet-style communism were, you know, that kind of model state socialism were both, you know, they're both fundamentally products of the modern world. They're they're both post-enlightenment, which means that even if in some really grotesque ways, like some of the ones you're talking about in the American side of the ledger, uh, you know, they didn't live up to this, they'd at least both pay lip service to certain kinds of ideals about human equality because, you know, everybody in the modern world kind of has to. And it's like, yeah, in that sense, they are the same. But it's like, it, one, that, that's not a very informative sense uh, for all the reasons you're hinting at. But two, um, that seems like a good thing to me. 
Like, I, I want people to have to at least pretend, you know, to, uh, to believe in some kind of, you know, absolute baseline of human moral equality. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? And I mean, most progressive historians of note have actually acknowledged this, right? Uh, people like Terry Eagleton, uh, who's not a historian, but a good literary theorist, but Eric Hosbaum is the example that comes most prominently to mind, right? Uh, or Richard Evans have pointed out that certainly you can draw an elective affinity between liberal capitalism and socialism in both being products of the Enlightenment, committed to a certain notion of human equality, and ultimately also committed to a kind of materialist uh, normative theory about what the important things are to emphasize human life. Uh, but the differences between them also matter very much historically. Uh, and the historical differences uh, of interest between the Soviet Union and the United States were vast uh, and had a worldwide impact. And trying to suggest that ultimately the United States was on board with what the Soviets were trying to accomplish in Russia, uh, and then providing a few reactionary references to try to back that up against the overwhelming weight of mainstream and even conservative scholarship is just baffling uh, to me, right? Uh, and like I said, try going and telling that to anybody in Latin America or the Middle East who is the victim of a U.S.-led coup to try to overthrow the marginally social democratic regimes or democratic socialist regimes that were established there. Just go tell them that uh, and see what they have to say to you. Yeah. Um, of course, Yarvin writes, Lenin's party was literally the Social Democratic Labor Party. Uh, and of course, since Teddy Roosevelt went on to the great hunting ground in the sky, that is for about the last century, progressive in American discourse just met communist. My grandparents, CPUSA members whose faith never lapsed, said progressive for their whole lives. The Verona dispatches messages to the KG, for the KGB from U.S. assets use it. That kids today have no idea what this word means does not excuse them, but it does certainly not excuse a political science professor or at least a talicized lecturer uh, that in parentheses, to be fair, young McManus has an impressive publishing record and is surely well on his way to Harvard uh, so long as he doesn't use an illegal word or disrespect to progressive to protected class. Nice. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ben, the fucking next year, you and I will be in Boston together. Celebrating. Uh, uh, well, I look forward to that. Congratulations on your future. Uh, yeah. Gig. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously that last part speaks to what you were saying earlier about how he can't, he really can't decide whether to uh, sneer on you, uh, sneer at you for not having a tenure track job or uh, to, um, or to, to resent you as a, as a member of the, you know, upper elite, you know, managing the cathedral. Uh, but the stuff leading up to that, like, you know, oftentimes what the people do in introductory logic classes is give people just a paragraph of text, like as an appear in the wild and say like, okay, identify one of the premises and one of the conclusions here. Uh, like label them premise one, premise two, you know, like I, I really... I really want to see like a class of people try to like tell diagram this out for me. Tell me like what are the premises, what are the conclusion here? Because because um, he seems uh, it seems like the conclusion is that anybody is that progressive means communist. Um, that anybody who uh, so anybody who calls themselves a progressive, whether they realize it or not, is really calling themselves a communist. That's the conclusion, as far as I can tell. Um, and I just want to list off all the pieces of evidence that he cites for this. 
Um, well, the first sentence is irrelevant because that's about social democrat, not progressive. We can deal with that later. But the what he says is his his grandparents used the word progressive to describe their politics. Oh, and if I could also just say, I can't believe that a dude who's as old as he is is still fucking going back to this well again and again and again. Like I read so much of his stuff from like 2009 up until about 2012, 2014, and every single fucking piece of writing had to begin with, well, but my parents and grandparents were progressive. Uh, again, to try to hint at this kind of pseudo countercultural quality to his writing because he bucked the trend of following in his fandy's footsteps. Uh, but for a guy who's now well into middle age to still be leaning on, look at how brave I was to deviate from what my grandparents uh, thought was the right thing to do <laughs> is kind of embarrassing. It also suggests that he really is just a one trick pony. Like he just has to keep coming back to the same fucking set of riffs decade after decade after decade, because there's nothing new to say. And reading that just bored the hell out of me for about the umpteen time reading this. I'm like, just say something new for God's sake. Like, I don't need to fucking hear your autobiography again. <laughs> I understand your super villain origin story. I've gotten it. It's like the number of times we've seen Batman's parents get shot. It's over. We get it. It's done. Move on. Like, I don't need Uncle Ben to die in another movie. I don't need to hear about how your grandparents were commies for the umpteen time. It does not impress me at all. Uh, that either they were communists or that you've deviated from that as an upper middle class kid who decided that cashing checks from Peter Till was probably more affluent uh, than, or sorry, probably a bad, safer financial bet uh, than doubling down on communist politics in the 2010s. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's also like, okay, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna run down uh, my four late grandparents, uh, political opinions because one it'd be incredibly boring for everybody and two uh they weren't public figures so like it feels a little weird to do that but um you know i will say that out of the four of them zero were jackman style democratic socialists so i guess i get that sticker too uh the, the disagreeing with your grandparents merit badge uh but, uh, but it, <laughs> yeah commendations all around yeah. Yeah. uh in any case um like, honestly, like, listening to this was like listening to, like, late period Eminem, where he's still complaining about his mom at, like, in his 50s. <laughs> it's like, it's fucking over, man. Like, we've heard this record since the fucking mid-2000s. 20, like 2000s. Find a new thing to fucking talk about. I don't care anymore. Oh, man, you're talking about the whole, the uh, poet laureate of my home state there, but... Um... Hey, I love Eminem. That's why I'm disappointed. I don't love Yarbin, so I find it even more annoying. <laughs> oh. Fair enough. Um... So, so the, as far as I could tell, the only pieces of evidence that progressive just means communist and anybody calls themselves a progressive is calling themselves a communist whether they realize it or not. Uh, the only pieces of evidence he gives for this is that his communist grandparents called themselves progressives and that some uh, dispatches from KGB assets use the word progressive. And a really, really obvious question to ask about this evidence would be, okay, is that remotely representative? In other words, like what percentage of uses of the word progressive in American politics does this represent um, at any point? Like pick a decade. In that decade, what percentage of uses of the word progressive does it represent? Like in the 1940s, say the 
CPUSA would have used the word progressive a lot because they would talk about a popular front between all democratic and progressive forces. Okay, fine. What percentage of people who use the word progressive to describe themselves in the 1940s were communists? 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And, um, and you notice particularly that cute little thing that he does where he buries at the beginning of the sentence one of the most obvious counterexamples, says, and of course, of course, since Teddy Roosevelt went out to the great hunting grounds of the sky. So in other words, uh, nothing in the Teddy Roosevelt era counts. For some reason, <laughs> we're starting the clock after that, but also ending it before the last couple decades when this has just become the most common synonym for liberal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, a lot of us follow the Harvey K line uh, of being sympathetic to the New Deal era. But let's be very clear about what American progressivism mid-century actually entailed. I think that William Levitt captured it very nicely, uh, where he said that no man who owns a house will ever become a communist because he has too much stuff to do. Uh, and for that matter, too much property to be concerned about. And that was really the aspiration behind a lot of these New Deal policies, right? It was a, people were aware of the fact that if progressive liberalism didn't do something to save the market, then people would be attracted to radical alternatives, either Bolshevik communism or some other flavor of that, or even far worse from my perspective, fascism, right? Which was right. very prestigious through the 1930s. Uh, and so they enacted a wide series of policies to try to increase union density, secure better wages for the working classes, and yes, try to secure homes for everybody uh, so that they would have an interest in retaining systems of private property. Uh, now, there's a lot of good that these policies did, and I'd like to see more of them. Uh, they were sure. racially polarizing, uh, and they tend to benefit the white and working class uh, without really doing very much for people of color, sometimes even at the expense of people of color. But there's no reason we couldn't try to tinker with policies like this and avoid that in the future. Uh, but they were very consciously construed as an anti-communist measure a kind of concession to the popularity of communism that would inoculate people against it. This idea of trying to conflate all of this together really demonstrates just how little understanding Garvin has of the very deep divisions between pretty much everyone to the right of fucking Richard Nixon, right? Uh, which, again, is really saying something. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the one thing... I mean, Richard have... Nixon said, we are all Keynesians now. Is Richard Nixon a fucking communist? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing I would push back on just a little bit is about, uh, race and the new deal. I think there's like a German truth there that the, you know, I mean, look, all this happened with the United States was a racial apartheid state. So certainly, you know, there was, um, you know, certainly like this wasn't the one thing in American life that was totally integrated. That's true. But, but I would still point out that, um, the, I, I think that a lot of the narrative that you hear about this, I think, is like a little bit oversimplified. I think that there's, um, you know, I think that uh, like a lot of the exemptions like to Social Security and other programs people are talking about for like uh, agricultural workers, and domestic workers, obviously in the U.S. context, you know, disproportionately uh, hurt black people. But I, I think with early um social insurance programs and like European countries without the same racial history, you do tend to get similar carve outs is my understanding. Cause just cause you have, you know, powerful political, you know, politically influential uh, reactionary landowners all over the place. Uh, and, and even, uh, even with those carve outs, which are terrible, um, there was still, I mean, I, I, I think it is maybe important to emphasize that, uh, 
you know, the, like there is a reason why 1936 was the single biggest uh, swing in the black vote in American history, you know, from, from the Republicans, to the Democrats, because oh, absolutely. Uh, despite the, um, despite some of the ugly deals with, with Southern conservatives that, that froze out a lot of people uh, in that part of the country, um, you know, certainly black population in the North, you know, um, like working class black people in uh, Northern states benefited massively from uh, both from new deal programs and from uh directly and also uh and also from the sort of birth of the big industrial unions that um you know that uh you know create like was was allied uh to that political program and that was and that created all these like good industrial jobs that's like why that second big migration happened you know in the first place so you know i i i would you know, again, I, I would just like nuance the the sort of racial history of the New Deal part a little bit, but but there's there's no doubt whatsoever that about about the you know anti communism part. You know that the um, that like I, I mean, do I think sometimes leftists will exaggerate it? Yeah, I do. I don't think the U.S. was like really going to have like a communist revolution in 1933 if we didn't get a New Deal. But like I, I think, um, but. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that, you know, that they, you know, that they were, um, that FDR and, and other New Dealers were worried about the growth in popularity and radical ideology and, and that they definitely saw their mission as stabilizing American capitalism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, just to comment on the race issue uh, a little bit, I think that you're right. Uh, I don't want to imply that the New Deal was somehow an anti-black uh, program, because it wasn't. Uh, a really good nuanced take of this uh, was given by the historian Jonathan Holloway, uh, who's actually the president of Rutgers right now, so you might have some strong opinions about him, but we won't get into that. Sure. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that he points out, again, is that there were certainly unfairness uh, in a lot of elements of New Deal legislation, particularly when it came to things like uh, who benefited from GI bills and the fact that uh-huh. it was primarily you know, American white veterans. But he also stresses the fact that, look, you know, for the first time, major black leaders in the United States had pretty much a direct telephone line to not FDR, but at least Eleanor Roosevelt, right? Uh, And that was an unprecedented development in terms of their political power. And he also points out how many American blacks who'd historically been marginalized benefited from things like the institution of social insurance. uh, And some of that was at least conscious on the part of their proponents uh, and the designers of these policies. So sure, there's a very complicated story to be told there, right? Uh, About race and the New Deal. And I don't want to get into the weeds of that too much. But I do think what is clear is this conflation of everyone on the progressive end of the spectrum, even the kind of centrist part of the spectrum, uh, to essentially supportive of communism, uh, whether in a more light or more muscular yeah. form, is just absolutely ridiculous, right? Uh, if anything, uh, you really see what American liberals were committed to when after the threat of the Soviet Union dissipated, uh, they immediately started reintroducing revanchist policies of the thought of the sort that many of us hoped uh, had been historically or relegated to the waste bit of history, to use his Marxist term, right? Because uh, they no longer saw themselves under threat by communism. They felt that the working class had effectively been neutralized by the policies of neoeconomics. There was really no alternative, as Margaret Thatcher put it, at least for a little while. So why not go back to things like union busting? Uh, yeah. Or why not go back to things like just rolling back workers' benefits and reintroducing job precarity? Uh, because there's nothing they can do about that. So those are your progressive American liberals uh, with their deep dedication to communism and the working class. Yeah. Um, 
Bernie Sanders, Yarvin says, everyone's favorite progressive grandpa, certainly mine. Uh, honeymoon to the USSR. Imagine if it was Hitler. Um, you know, which makes me think, was it Osman Buba Bozgahat? You know, the, uh, was the, uh, was this, uh, you know, the classic Yiddish phrase about, you know, if my grandmother had balls. Uh, yes. <laughs> imagine if it was Hitler. You know, that would be a very different situation. Why are we talking about that? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, let's take the strength of both systems, Charles Lindbergh said upon completing this trip. Let's learn from each other. Contrary to Jewish lies, Lindbergh's journey was not honeymoon. No, he was merely establishing a sister city relationship between St. Louis and the lovely Alpine village of Judenzatzrogen. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that cultural friendship activities between the United States and the Soviet Union had been going on since the uh, Nixon administration. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know that I myself have been critical of people who have a certain kind of nostalgia for the Soviet sure. system. Uh, and I think that there are many good reasons why progressives should actually be extremely critical uh, of Soviet communism uh, for its anti-democratic propensities, uh, for its own tendency to engage in imperialist wars, uh, and certainly uh, for not fulfilling the promise of Marxism to develop a classless, egalitarian society committed to human flourishing. Uh, that's probably the biggest disappointment at all. At least it should be, right? Mm -hmm. um, but sitting there and using that to tarnish somebody like Bernie Sanders, who I don't think has ever proposed anything like the adoption of the Soviet model in no. the United States, is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I mean, most people pointed out that Bernie, and I love the guy, is pretty much a conventional Western social democrat, where he wants something like the implementation <coughs> of universal health care for all, uh, I mean, didn't you joke about that once? Like, if you wanted to do a Bernie Sanders act, all you'd have to do is put a wig on and just sit there and parrot universal Medicare for all, universal Medicare for all on repeat, and you pretty much get it, right? Uh, along with, you know, implementing educational reform and various other things that we really should want to see. Uh, sure. But this certainly doesn't entail a revolutionary transfer of the means of production to the hands of the working class. It's definitely something that we should try to implement, uh, but this attempt scaremonger about Bernie uh, by associating him with the Soviet Union is just passionately obscene. Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, more radical sort of early Bernie in like the 70s would uh, sometimes talk about, you know, uh, transfer the means of production. Uh, but, uh, but even then, I mean, he was never a Stalinist. I mean, he was a... Uh, uh, even even sort of Bernie at his most radical. I mean, he was he was uh, you know it was, it was always very clear that you know he he was a big fan of free speech and multi party democracy and all that and, and in fact wanted you know again I think in his most radical moments to extend democracy to the workplace and certainly after all the decades in D.C. I mean is um, you know certainly view him as you know uh, whatever criticisms I ever have certainly view him as the most useful uh, American politician by a mile uh, but he's uh, but, you know, I mean, his ambitions are, as you say, pretty uh, limited to, to pretty straightforward kind of, uh, you know, basic bitch social democracy uh, at uh, at this point, which is a good reminder. that yeah, they... I mean, I, I can't remember how many times he said Sweden, Norway, Denmark uh, over the course <laughs> of his two campaigns. But there must be a drinking game you could play with it because it's an awful lot. Right. Uh, yeah. And 
Say whatever you will about Sweden, Norway, Denmark. Uh, the weather isn't particularly good. And I've heard some people say that Swedish people aren't exactly the friendliest in the world. I don't think anybody would characterize them as Stalinist communist societies. Maybe Dinesh D'Souza, uh, maybe Curtis Yarvin, sure, sure. but that's about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure um, that... Uh... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the uh, that by by any by any standard, I mean these are um, among the least authoritarian societies in the entire world. Which is actually, um, you know, we're not going to get to it today. Maybe we could do a part two in a week or two. But there's a uh, uh, but in the later part of the article where he starts talking about crime and all that is actually a very very relevant point to that, right? Because it's like, well, hold on. Uh, you know, what are some of the countries with the most humane and minimalistic prison systems? Uh, and it's those, <laughs> yeah. those, the ones that Bernie Sanders is obsessed with, right? Uh, and this is a good time to go back to that line about, of course, Lenin's party was literally the Social Democratic Labor Party. It's like, yeah, I mean, as, I mean, words evolve over time. That's, uh, in, you know, before the Russian Revolution, social democracy was just a synonym for socialism, which makes sense because it's extended democracy into the social sphere, i.e. the workplace, the economy, uh, which is what was traditionally always meant by socialism. And then after the Russian Revolution, uh, because people who supported the Russian Revolution now called themselves communists, uh, people who still called themselves social democracy were expressed as social democrats we're now, even though that was the original name of what became the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, we're now expressing disagreement with that by continuing to call themselves social democrats. And then by, you know, I don't know, post-World War II, uh, certainly it had started to drift from, you know, like, I mean, even before that, I mean, even by like, yeah, I don't know, it's like the 20, 1920s or 30s, like uh, people who still call themselves social democrats were likely to were much more likely even than in like the early 19-teens, say, to, to think that there was a reformist path to socialism, that, you know, you could sort of, uh, that there was a process of gradual reforms of capitalism that would eventually get you to, to socialism. And then by, you know, and, and it's complicated because you still have people who would call themselves social democrats, um, like, um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but the, uh, Swedish prime minister who was assassinated. The Swedish prime minister that was assassinated? I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, in like the 80s? Oh, anyway. No, no idea. Yeah. Uh, okay. The guy who tried to implement the MADDA plan. I do know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Like people like that, like clearly had ambitions, had like long-term political horizons that went beyond capitalism uh, and would still definitely be called social democrats. But like, look, definitely one thing that we mean by like definitely now I mean, by, you know, even by then, I think that was a little bit unusual. Most social Democrats really did have horizons that were limited to just performing capitalism. And now that's mostly what we mean by social Democrat, although it's complicated because, you know, in the sort of Jacobin kind of quarter of the left, we'll say a lot of things like social democracy is good, but it's not good enough. Right. Meaning that we, we like social democratic reforms, but we want to go further or whatever. Uh, but the Bernie Sanders aspect of this is just asinine. I mean, the, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the United States had been, uh, like, I mean, how many decades, like, 
Rigged approved of the sister cities program, right? Like uh, that's not, and that's not to say that Reagan and Bernie were on the same same page about the Cold War. I mean, Bernie was obviously very worried about the arms race and a much more peaceful coexistence guy. But like, you know, that just just taking this as evidence of anything is just is just bizarre. I mean, my favorite example of this of all time uh, is uh, I think I think in the lead up to the 2020 run or in the early stages somebody dug up some videos of Bernie in the Soviet Union in the eighties and they, they to try to use as like uh evidence, you know, there's oh trying to like make a little scandal about it. And like one of them, like the, the funniest one, there is one of them where Bernie like has his shirt off. He, he's like drinking with some shirtless Russian guys and doing shots of vodka and singing. Uh and but like literally what he's leading them in singing is this land is our land. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know think once in the Soviet Union, he was actually giving away miniature American flags at an event. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I know it's shocking, but people can label themselves one thing and actually be another. Uh, that's something that it's very important to stress, right? Uh, Mussolini characterized the successor party to the Italian fascist party as the Republican fascist party, uh, centered, you know, around the Salerno. Uh, and I don't think that anybody would believe that there was anything particularly the Republican uh, about his fascist party, right? Uh, but you know what you say is extremely important because again, it demonstrates how. What Yarvin is essentially doing is conflating the history of all these left-wing movements together without being at all attentive to the truly important differences between them. Now, it's very important to stress that in the early years of socialism, it wasn't very clear what the distinction between social democracy, democratic socialism, communism, all that meant. Uh, it's still not very clear to this day, and there are widespread debates sure. about this. But speaking very, very broadly, right, uh, Marx would often use the term democracy, socialism, communism interchangeably without really being all that concerned with distinction between them. Because uh, there was this assumption that once you move beyond the horizon of bourgeois society, socialism will inevitably appear, right? Uh, yeah. Or it's gradually going to appear given a long enough time scale. As it became very obvious that that was not going to happen, you start to see hardening differences of opinion about what the right way is to uh, try to establish something like socialism or communism, or whether there actually might be a meaningful difference between something like, say, social democracy and democratic socialism or a communist state. Uh, and these differences are really important because definitely by the 1950s, uh, you start to see many people who are identifying with social democracy as something akin to a third way between communism and capitalism, uh, taking the best facets of each system and combining them with democratic, liberal, representative political structures, right? Uh, that wasn't the case when Lenin was rising to power. Uh, and by trying to conflate all these things together without being sensitive to this historical nuance, he's really doing disservice to his audience. Uh, and I think, again, intentionally. Yeah. All right. Going to skip past because uh, we're about at time to wrap up for today, but uh, I want to get to the end of the section. Uh, at least we're going to uh, skip past the next few paragraphs because this is all just him belaboring this metaphor between uh, Hitler's Germany and Gorbachev's Soviet Union, which he, you know, apparently sees as just obviously morally equivalent. Uh, I do not, but uh, in any case, uh, he says. Um, uh, yes, Silver, I see your chat comment. Redlining is very bad, uh, but I think a lot of the other New Deal stuff, uh, you know, that does start with federal housing authorities. That That is definitely that is definitely a, a strike against. But, you know, I, I think a lot of the other programs did 
massively benefit a lot of poor working class black people. But in any case, um, uh, skipping past to the last couple sections, sentences of the section, it says hardly exaggeration to say that in the 1930s, the Soviet experiment was cool among all cool people. <laughs> Professor McManus too is cool. Even if he is, even if he is a Catholic, uh, and Catholic has scare quotes and a hyperlink that leads you, if you click on this, uh, syllabus of errors, syllabus of errors by Pope Pius the ninth in 1864, that includes something about socialism and communism and secret societies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this didn't surprise me all that much, uh, Every now and then, Yarvin will express a kind of sympathy for reactionary Catholicism, because uh, there's no reactionaries like Catholic reactionaries. Uh, and this strikes me as just an attempt to imply that there's something deviant or heretical uh, about writing for a Catholic magazine, but advancing a liberal or progressive viewpoint. Um, but of course, Catholicism, a religion of two billion people, is itself <laughs> extraordinarily complex and politically variegated. Uh, and if you want any proof of that, just look at the difference between the two most recent popes uh, and their respective partisans. Uh, there's vast theological uh, and political differences between them that are very significant. Or you can point to things like liberation theology, which is extraordinarily important and extraordinarily Catholic in the propagation of a kind of Marxism throughout Latin America as an example of how people have tried to combine various kinds of Catholic thinking, Catholic social teachings uh, with a kind of broadly left outlook. But that's not the most important thing. What really bothered me about this is the fact that I've written about religious issues before, and he doesn't even seem to have bothered to have gone and learned a little bit about this, uh, which is insulting because if he wants to give me fucking homework, then at the very least he could just look up Matt McManus religion or secularism or something, and there would be a fucking shit ton of stuff that he could learn there. Uh, but I guess, again, uh, he's too busy cashing those big Peter Thiel checks and hanging around in New York smoking cheap cigarettes. So... Too much work to do. Yeah. Uh, my one my one piece of inside information here is uh, I, I don't know I don't know what brand he smokes, but uh does not smell good. Uh, but Well, he doesn't smoke Canadian classic, which is the best and premium cigarette that is the only cigarette uh, for a man of taste. So <laughs> fair enough. Um yeah, I I have a, I feel comfortable you know uh, revealing my inside information here because he uh, was on a podcast a little while after our debate and uh, he he said like the backstory to this is that I think we were in the car on the way over to the debate and one of the things he asked me was whether I believed in like a blank slate like a you know which I, I took to be you know I'm familiar with the Pinker book uh, I took to be a way of asking whether I, I was like the kind of socialist who says there's no such thing as human nature. Uh, mm. And I said, no, which is honest. I, I don't believe that. Right. I, uh, uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think that there are probably lots of things that are psychologically innate in humans and not all of them are good and all of that. I, and, you know, what I've actually argued in print in multiple places is that, uh, that's that's not a reason not to be a socialist. That's a reason to be a socialist. That you know, if you're worried that yeah. people are going to be cruel and selfish and abuse their power over each other, you should want power to be spread around economically as well as politically as evenly as at all possible. That's my argument. But in any case, so he asked me, "Do I believe in blank slate?" I said, "No," 
and then he, um, and then uh, in um, uh, in the debate itself, uh, he said all this incredibly creepy shit about uh, you know the peoples, and if you uh, what is it? If you had uh, if you took everybody, if you exchanged the populations of what is it Norway to Haiti or something, uh, then uh, uh, the you know, then like the Norwegians would do just fine in Haitian circumstances. And it's about the people and all this stuff, all this like stuff. It's like, um, Oh yeah. No, he will sometimes lean in, uh, on that kind of Charles Murray shit, uh, before again, backing off it when he thinks that he's going too far, uh, but not backing off it too stridently. Let's be clear about this. I mean, he was, he was very, um, he was, he was evasive when the moderator Thaddeus Russell asked him, uh if if he what he was saying about you know people's whether he whether it was cultural or genetic uh he 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 gave a very weaselly answer that didn't really answer it uh he was like well i don't know what experiment would you know differentiate between the two and so it's okay all right got it you don't want to answer uh but oh yeah if i could just say one thing this is one of the fucking things that annoy me the most about reading his books because sometimes for all this kind of attempt to cloak himself in this countercultural lure, what comes out really clearly is that he is just what he says he is, uh, a kind of powdery, pretty well-off scion of middle-class privilege. Uh, and this really leans into cliché territory at points. I remember reading one of his books where he's talking about vacationing with his wife in Naples uh, and how the city was really dirty and it wasn't really well organized. And there were all kinds of criminals going around Naples and how he just really wanted to get home where he could feel safe again. Uh, and I sat there thinking to myself, like, Jesus Christ, he's a fucking Karen. That's the basis of a lot of these objections. He's a Karen at heart. Uh, and he's just looking for, his way, for a way to turn Karenism into a reactionary philosophy. Uh, and that is also true whenever he starts to say sneering things, to use his term, about countries like Haiti, divorced from the actual historical reasons why that country has suffered immensely at the hands of France, the United States. You take your pick, Right. Um, because he's just like, well, you know, they can't manage a country that the way the Swedes can, uh, or even the Japanese can. So it's all their fault. Nothing more needs to be said about it. And I'm tired of hearing about it. Yeah. Uh, again, this very kind of yeah. middle-class exoneration of any kind of responsibility for the West's serious skill, uh, and underdeveloping that region of the world, uh, coupled with this just disdainful, um, attitude towards the very idea that these people should think that they're confident enough to govern themselves. Yeah. Um, and so I had, you know, I'd, I'd said some stuff about that after the debate and then, uh, Yarvin was on some other podcast and he was like, well, it's Ben Burgess guy. It was like a 30 seconds of sneering of like sort of sneering that doesn't quite express a proposition, but like, it's like, Ooh, Ben Burgess. Uh, and then he was like, well, Ben Burgess, you know, uh, said all this stuff about my views on race, but you know, he, he agreed with me about the blank slate, you know, in the car over. It's like, well, <laughs> those are just very obviously different questions. I mean, if you, if you said like, you know, do I deny that? Like, you know, like, do I deny that, uh, that, it, you know, innate human nature exists and not all of it is good is one question. Uh, do I think that it varies according to skin tone or national origin is a very different one. Oh, absolutely. And what I always like to stress is, of course, 
socialist uh, as the ancestors and materials tradition are, if anything, deeply sensitive to the fact uh, that they're inbuilt biological limitations to humanity. This is why we emphasize things like, wouldn't it be nice, nice to live in a society where there weren't so many poor people that they ended up starving in the millions every single year? Because, you know, people need to fucking eat. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we did what the sewer socialists did in cities like St. Louis in the early 20th century and saying, hey, maybe rather than just allow the poor uh, to live in their own refuse because we don't give a shit, let's build sewers uh, so that we can actually let them and help them lead healthy lives. Uh, you know, this kind of materialist sensitivity, uh, particularly to issues relating to the body uh, and its needs, is something that I think we've always been really strong on. But this is the more foundational point uh, that I like to make. Uh, I don't buy any of this kind of racist crap uh, about, you know, the ultramensure or whatever it happens to be or whatever call, fucking term they're using right now. Uh, but let's generalize this proposition that there are variations in human ability uh, that are significant politically uh, and economically. Uh, here, I think they would actually be on safer ground because I do think it's clear uh, that there are variations in human capabilities that are established by nature. And I don't think, by the way, any progressive has disagreed. Uh, most of us are actually very concerned with things like disability rights for mm -hmm. this reason. But the question then becomes the Rawlsian one, which is, do we put, what kind of moral weight do we put on this? Is it morally significant that there are variations in human ability or is it morally arbitrary? Uh, and here's where I say it's absolutely morally arbitrary, right? Uh, variations in natural ability are just the result of winning a genetic lottery. Uh, many people exercise the aptitudes that they've gained through this genetic lottery for very to do very, very bad things. Uh, and there's no reason uh, why people should be disadvantaged because they don't have those kinds of aptitudes. And this becomes even more significant when you think that many people are born into very affluent social circumstances, uh, but the vast majority of people aren't, which is also purely a matter of luck. Mm -hmm. So this argument does not do nearly the amount of work that they think it does, uh, because beyond just being incredibly racist, if you actually take seriously what it is that they're trying to get to, which is this notion that we should take natural aptitude seriously, at least to the conclusion that life is just a genetic lottery, people wind up where they are for no good reason. So why should we allow people who have been disadvantaged through no fault of their own to suffer needlessly from that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, also, um, uh, two notes. Uh, one, Olaf Palma is the guy whose name I was, I was trying to remember earlier, the Swedish prime minister. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. Who, uh, it's bothering me too, right? I was like, yeah. Um, who, uh, I'm actually not quite sure if, uh, cause I think there's more information that came out about this in the last few years, but I haven't kept up on it. I, I, I know the speculation at the time was that the, his assassination had something to do with apartheid South Africa and his, his you know, support for the ANC and all that. But I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a definite thing or not, but, um, but no. yes, uh, also, um, uh, also, I mean, look, I, <laughs> you know, I don't think you claim to be a, a devout Catholic. Uh, so it's like pretty funny that he's tried to, uh, you know, Hey, I feel an awful lot of guilt, uh, and I drink an awful lot. If anything, I'm the best Catholic. Yeah, there you go. I'm a representative Catholic at this yeah, point. Fair enough. Um, but uh, but it is also really funny, just because it's like, okay, I looked it up. Right, there are 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. Uh, I, I think you get a pretty wide range of political opinion there, and um, you know, as uh, as pointed out in the chat. Uh, 
I there's uh you know, Dorothy Day, as you point out, they're the liberation theologians, whatever. There's certainly been a wide, wide spectrum of Catholic political opinion, but also just this idea that the um, it, it's just so representative of Yarvin's like weird, eclectic, cherry picked approach to history that he is going back to 1864 to uh, find this syllabus of errors. I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's like, how many popes have there been since Pius the Ninth? I mean, like, you want to maybe ask what the current guy thinks? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fucking most significant Catholic philosopher in the world today uh, is a man called Alistair McIntyre. Now, I have very serious disagreements with a lot of what McIntyre has to say, but something that I don't disagree with uh, is this deep reverence for Marxism, uh, from his early classic Marxism and Christianity to his latest book, 2016, uh, where he points out that there are a lot of good reasons uh, that a faith tradition, uh, for a faith tradition that says, the wretched of the earth will know that God is on their side uh, to think that Marxism might have fucking something to say to them. Uh, and a lot of Catholics and a lot of Christians have agreed with that. But of course, that's all washed away uh, in these vast historical generalities that Yarvin needs to rely upon in order for his argument to make any kind of sense whatsoever. Uh, it's really a kind of amusing way of thinking about history and just not being attentive to nuance uh, if it wasn't so toxic in its influence. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Okay, well, uh, I would like at some point in the future to talk about the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the part of the uh, the rest of the article about uh, about crime and authoritarianism and all of that stuff. But that is more than enough courtesy Arvin for one day. Uh, so I think we're going to cut it off there. Uh, but uh, Matt, what is uh, what's your most recent book, and where can people find it? Yeah, so I have a new book coming out soon, uh, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. Uh, it's coming out in July, and I'm pretty excited about it, actually, um, especially because a lot of the reactionaries are already super pissed about it, which is why that Yarvin thing came back up again. Uh, they were retweeting something I said about the book and just got super pissed off that I'd even written such a thing. Uh, but I also have a book coming out in September uh, that I think it's worth starting to pitch, because uh, you actually wrote the introduction for it. It's the long-awaited how-to guide uh, to cosmopolitan socialism, uh, my tribute to Michael Brooks. That includes just a beautiful uh, tribute uh, from you to him. And that's something that was zero books in September. So people should pre-order that if they can uh, and check out some of my other stuff in places like Jacobin and Current Affairs. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Take care, boss.